Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 1 Samuel chapter 30 David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burnt it and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the wife of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Himlech, Bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Bezor Ravine, where some stayed behind, for 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and 400 men continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, To whom do you belong? And where do you come from? He said, I am an Egyptian, the slave of a Melekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Kerathites and the territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, Can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, Swear to me before God, that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, This is David's plunder. 
Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Bezor Ravine. They came out to meet David and the people with him. As David and his men approached, he greeted them. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He protected us and handed us over to the forces that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All shall share alike. David made this a statue and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. When David arrived in Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, Here is a present for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. He sent it to those who were in Bethel, Ramoth, Negev, and Jatir, to those in Aurora, Siphoth, Estamoa, and Rachel, to those in the towns of the Jumelachites and the Kinites, to those in Hormah, Borashan, Athak, and Hebron, and to those in all the other places where David and his men had roamed. Paul, thank you very much indeed for reading. And uh, I may encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we come to the penultimate week of our series, looking through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, I'll uh, finish things off next week. Let's uh, pray together as we turn to look at this Bible passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for your word. We thank you that over these weeks we've seen this book written so many years ago is so relevant to our lives today and we pray that we'd see the same again indeed be encouraged to stand firm for you and we ask it in Jesus name amen now I wonder if you're like uh, me in this regard I like to feel safe I I want to be safe I I want everything I value to be safe when my children leave for school in the morning, I tell them to be careful, to be careful crossing the road. They're old enough to do that, but I still tell them. And I pray that they'll be kept from physical, emotional and spiritual harm. I do that almost every morning. When at the end of the day I turn in for the night, I check that the doors are locked at home and then I check them again and then I set the alarm. I was in London a few days last week and the whole time I made sure that my wallet and my phone were safely away from any pickpockets. I have to have money in the bank for a rainy day and a credit card with me in the event of an emergency. On holiday, we always have travel insurance and I'm a bit neurotic when it comes to knowing the whereabouts of the passports and the travel tickets. I plan for a secure future in pension provision and life assurance. When I walk home in the dark late at night, I find myself on edge when someone is walking behind me. I want to live in a safe and secure country. I want a leader who will take national security seriously and a police force that is able to keep the peace. And so when things happen in the world like last week on a tourist beach in Tunisia, I begin to wonder, is anywhere safe? Are you like me? I like to feel safe. I want to be safe. I want everything I value to be safe. The problem is, living a wholehearted and authentic Christian life doesn't feel safe at all. Stand up for Christ and we run the risk of getting into hot water, of being disliked by people and rejected by institutions. 
Some things that Jesus tells us to believe and live are so countercultural, we may well find ourselves in trouble with the authorities. Living faithfully for Jesus Christ can put our careers in jeopardy. The Christian life, when it's lived unreservedly, seems to be far from safe. And so it seems to be far from the sensible option. Of course, because I believe the gospel is true, I won't give it up. But because I know how vulnerable I am in this scary world, and because a a radical Christian lifestyle doesn't feel safe, I find myself compromising and settling for a kind of domesticated Christianity, a kind of Christianity light. I try to live a Christian life that doesn't look so different from the world. A Christianity where I can merge all the safeties of this world into the Christian life. A, Christian, a Christianity which doesn't give away too much money because money is my safety net. A Christianity which doesn't speak out for Jesus if it means losing my job because my job gives me all the securities that put me at ease. I steer clear of a Christianity that makes radical life choices about where to live and how to use my time in retirement. And inadvertently, I pass this safe Christianity onto my children. Without even consciously doing it, I teach my children that education and wealth creation and career and material possessions are the things that give us security in this life. In our studies in 1 Samuel in these last weeks, we've been confronted by a very clear distinction between following the world and following the Christ. You'll remember if you've been here that Saul, King Saul, is a picture of what it means to follow the world. If you're taking notes, look up later, 1 Samuel chapter 8. We did look at it way back. It tells us that he was appointed precisely because Israel wanted to be like the nations around them, like the world. To follow Saul then is to follow the world. And following King Saul, we have seen, looks safe. He's king, he has a strong army. He promised great things to those who followed him. Remember chapter 22 and verses 7 and 8? Saul promised fields and vineyards to those who followed him. Material possessions, real estate. And he promised success and status. You can be, do you remember how he put it? You will be a commander of thousands. Hundreds of people will look to you if you follow me. Follow Saul, follow the world and you can be someone. Saul lived the dream and offered those who followed him a life of luxury and success and status. And so as I look at Saul and listen to all that he promises me, how enticing, how intoxicating his offer is. It's not only the people of Samuel's day that wanted to be like the world, I want it too. And not least of all because it seems to offer me safety and security as well as luxury and status. By contrast, following David, who is, do you remember, the Lord's anointed, chapter 16, verse 13, more literally, he is the Christ. Following David seems so vulnerable, so risky, so unsafe. So in chapter 22, verse 1, we saw David and those who followed him living in a cave. David, surrounded by a bunch of nobodies, constantly pursued by Saul, regularly within an inch of his life, David was on the run, a marked man. The world was against him. And so following David doesn't look very appealing and it certainly doesn't offer me the security that I so desperately crave. 
And that is exactly how it is when we follow the, the Christ, the Lord Jesus. It doesn't feel like the sensible option, not if I'm wanting security and safety. Throughout 1 Samuel then, we've been presented with two ways to live. We can follow Saul, be like the world, apparently on a path of wealth and status and material comfort and safety, or we can follow David, the Lord's Christ, and be on the run, under pressure, constantly looking over our shoulder, never really feeling safe. Now put like that, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? The sensible option is to follow Saul, to go the way of the world. But look, sometimes there's a world of difference between the ways things seem to be and the way things really are. 20 minutes before midnight on Sunday the 4th of April 1912, passengers on the upper deck of the Titanic felt three small bumps as the ship collided with an iceberg. Most people thought nothing of it. In fact, some people picked up ice that had fallen on the decks and started playing snowballs. Below deck, however, things were very different. The ship's hull had been buckled in several places. Rivets began to pop out below the waterline. Suddenly, Titanic was laid wide open to the Atlantic Ocean. Within three hours, the ship that was thought to be unsinkable had been completely swallowed up by the sea, together with 1,589 passengers. It raises the question, what is reality? And in the film Titanic, the moment is, is brilliantly portrayed... We're taken below deck to a scene in a small cabin. Rose, played by Kate Winslet, pleads with Mr Andrews, the engineer. She says, I saw the iceberg and I see it in your eyes. Please tell me the truth. And Mr Andrews, the engineer, replies, the ship will sink. In an hour or so, this will be at the bottom of the Atlantic. And then the director takes us to the ballroom where everyone is dressed in the most expensive clothes from the fashion centre of the world, dripping in jewels and enjoying the luxury uh, of life in the most opulent surroundings. They're having the time of their lives without a worry in the world. At least that's how it seems to them. We know the reality. In just a few hours, most of them will have perished in the icy waters. See, the luxury and security of being one of the privileged few able to travel on the Titanic was an illusion. They weren't safe at all. Similarly, as we finally come to our text at the end of 1 Samuel, we have two chapters that show us the reality of life. Chapter 30 that we look at today, we might call the reality of being safe with the Christ. And chapter 31 that we'll look at next week, the reality of the danger of following the world. Chapter 30 begins with the devastating news that the Amalekites had invaded Ziklag. And here, if you're taking notes, we begin to see the first point, that being with the Christ doesn't seem safe at all, verses 1 to 6. Ziklag was the place where David, his followers, and their families lived. David had been off fighting in Philistine country. And while he and all his men were away, the Amalekites had raided the land. And we read, verse 2, they'd taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. Being in David's camp doesn't seem to be the safest, safest option. We discover a bit later in the story that the Amalekites had raided not only David's town, Ziklag, Uh, But also they'd raided, verse 14, uh, the Negev, the Kerethites, the territory belonging to Judah, and the Negev of Caleb, 
and burned Ziglag. This was a raid on the people of God. All these people suffered only because they were God's people. And the people of Ziglag had, had suffered only because they decided to follow David the Christ. Had they not been following David, they wouldn't have been in that place. Now that happens today. People suffer just because they follow Jesus Christ. You can be a baker in Northern Ireland or run a bed and breakfast in Berkshire. And when you follow Jesus Christ and stand for his truth, you can find yourself in deep trouble for doing it. Or you can just be a normal person, you and me, hanging out with your friends, being a Christian in a non-Christian family, and you can get a hard time for doing and saying what is true and right. Here is much more than getting a hard time. Verse three, when David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire. Their wives and sons and daughters were taken captive. And so David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. That's a very telling verse, isn't it? Can you feel the pain? Well, some of you know what it's like to lose loved ones. Some of you know this kind of feeling. They wept until they could weep no more. Their families had been taken. And please note that David, as well as his men, wept. Yes, David wept. And it points us towards Jesus, the Christ. Jesus wept. He wept when he walked this earth and he saw the wickedness of the world. He weeps still when his family, you and me, his brothers and sisters, he weeps when, when we're hurt by the enemy. He weeps too today. We don't always have the answers to all the pain and suffering we encounter, but we know one who loves us this much, cares for us this much, that he sheds tears for us. Here then David feels the pain of losing family, verse 5. David's two wives have been captured, Ahinam, Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. But David also knew the pain of rejection, the rejection of those who followed him. Verse 6, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. Again, it points us to Jesus. He suffered the pain of rejection, even the rejection of his closest disciples. And it still happens today when people lose loved ones. Sometimes in bitterness, they begin to blame Jesus. I think of missionaries tragically and brutally killed just because they were Christian. Their parents were understandably devastated. In time, though, the pain turned to bitterness. They found themselves becoming increasingly bitter and angry towards God. It was only because they were serving you, Lord, that this happened. If they hadn't been serving you, they wouldn't have even been there. How could you let this happen? That's the big issue here. Verse 6, the men who followed the Christ blamed the Christ. See, following the Christ sometimes seems to make life a lot less safe. Well, look, there are no easy answers in those kinds of tragic circumstances. Let's not try and trot out any trite platitudes But see here that the Christ feels the pain. Know that he feels the loss when those dear to him are hurt. 
And while firstly being with the Christ doesn't seem safe, secondly we see that being with the Christ is to enjoy ultimate victory. This is verses 7 to 17. And we mustn't miss the last part of verse 6. As David's men turned against him, David, do you see it there, found strength in the Lord. Again, it reminds us of the Lord Jesus when he was utterly alone, when the whole world was against him, even when his followers around him abandoned him, he found strength in the Lord his God. Again and again, the first thing Jesus did was turn to his God in prayer. And that's the first thing we see David doing here in verse 7. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. So David and his men set out to find the Amalekites to rescue all those who'd been taken. David's prayers are quickly answered. And as they are, see the kindness of the Christ here in verse 9. David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor Ravine where some stayed behind for 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and 400 men continued the pursuit. Do you see that there? 200 men too exhausted to go into battle. David and his men had just completed a 60 mile march from Afek. They'd gone at a cracking pace. They'd done that 60 mile march in three days. And so as David now went in pursuit of the Amalekites, uh, some were simply too tired to keep going. I've met people like this over the years. Maybe you feel like this right now. Many people just get exhausted in the service of the Lord. They're not exhausted with it. They, They don't want to give up. They're just tired out. People sometimes turn up here tired, tired of the battles. Now listen, if that's you, let me say it's okay Just come along, sit and listen. Don't feel you've got to do anything here. Come and be refreshed week by week. Meet with God's people. Just let us help you. In time, it might be that you recover, you can get more involved if that's what you'd like to do, but for now, just rest. That's how it is with Jesus. We don't have to work in order to be acceptable to him. We believe in grace. And it's in stark contrast to how the world operates. Look at verse 11. They found an Egyptian uh, in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat. And verse 12 tells us of the cakes that he was eating and the water that he drank. And then verse 13, David asked him, to whom do you belong and where do you come from? He said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev and so on. Did you see there in verse 13 how cruel the world is? How it really isn't safe to follow the world. This slave was abandoned because he was ill. Unable to fight, he's left on the scrap heap. You see, it seems to me that is how the world will treat us. Unable to perform your toast. Some of you know the truth of this all too painfully. You've been dumped by the world. It might be through illness. It might be your age. It might just be because you don't fit in. If you don't perform or don't match up to what your master wants, you're out on your ear. That's how the world operates. 
That's why despite all the promises that are made by the world, we're not really safe in this world at all. Slightest thing and you're out. And we know this. Which is why so many people are stressed up to their eyeballs because they feel so vulnerable because they're looking to the world to provide for them and they know that it could be gone in a moment. But look, the moment David and his men came across this Egyptian, they cared for him, gave him all he needed. Do you see the contrast? 200 men can't go fighting. David says, it's okay, stay here. Just rest. Live with the world, be the Egyptian. Fall ill, you're out. But when David, the Christ, and his men meet that Egyptian, he's welcomed in and restored. Here's security, not based on my performance, given freely because the Christ is kind and loving and merciful. He doesn't love you because of what you can do for him. He loves you because you're down. He loves the downhearted, the downtrodden, the down and out. Well, as we read on, actually, this Egyptian is the answer to David's prayers. We saw him praying that he would, uh, would he uh, catch up with the, the Amalekites? And what do we read in verse 15? Well, verse 14, we discover that the, uh, the Egyptian has been part of this raiding party. In verse 15, David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, swear to me before God that you'll not kill me or hand me over to my master and I'll take you down to them. And he led David down and there they were scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. And David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. You see, it doesn't always seem safe to follow the Christ, but here we see the final victory is the Christ's. Again, it points us towards Jesus Christ and the final day in the history of the world as we know it, a day when Jesus Christ will ride out as a general, riding on a white horse, we're told in Revelation. He will have the victory. He will win. Ah, Here we are in the middle of Wimbledon fortnight. I've got to mention Wimbledon once, haven't I? Uh, and uh, I don't know if you've been watching it, but we love our guys and girls to win. We want to be on the winning side. The brilliant news is, with Jesus Christ, we are. The word of his promise has told us he will win. There will be a final victory. And listen to this, not only will he win, but he'll not lose any of those who are his. On that final day, we'll see that following Jesus is not risky at all. You see, it seems risky now, but it really isn't. We'll see in just a moment, being in Christ is the safest place we can be. What have we seen so far? Being with the Christ doesn't seem safe, but being with the Christ is to enjoy ultimate victory. And now we see that being with the Christ, we lose nothing. Look at verse 18. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they'd taken. David brought everything back. See the repetition, everything. Nothing was lost, everything. The point is, on that final day, we will finally realise we won't lose out on anything because we followed Jesus Christ. It's not as if we'll win the war, but we'll feel we've lost everything in the process. No, Everything will be recovered. 
On that final day, all those who suffered because they're God's people will have everything they lost in this life returned to them and more. In eternity with Jesus, nothing missing. Isn't it a wonderful thought? Now, knowing and believing this completely changes the way that we can live now. If in the new heavens and the new earth we'll have everything, if we're going to live in a new earth, a a place just like this, with, with all the bad bits taken out, if that's what it's going to be like, well, then we're going to have all eternity to do all the things that we want to do now, but we feel we can't do now because of our service to the Lord. I don't know, is it world travel? You feel you're missing out on world travel because you're serving the Lord? Don't worry about it. You have all eternity to travel the world and it won't even be risky. You won't have to take your passport. You'll be able to go everywhere. All the experiences we want to enjoy now but we don't feel we can because we're serving the Lord will be ours then. You want to swim with dolphins? You'll be able to in the new creation. Don't worry about it now. Knowing that changes the way I live now. Here's just one thought. It it, it frees me to live sacrificially, to give money to serve the Lord now, to give my time to serve the Lord now, because I'll have everything then. I'll be able to do it all then. What looks risky isn't risky at all. Ah, true, being with the Christ doesn't seem safe, but being with the Christ is to enjoy ultimate victory. Being with the Christ, we lose nothing. And fourthly and briefly, being with the Christ is to enjoy grace. Verses 21 to 31. Look at verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who'd been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the Besor ravine. They came out to meet David and the people with him. As David and his men approached, he greeted them. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, because they didn't go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we've recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. Well, that's very big of them. David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with, with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and handed us over to the forces and came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All shall share alike. And David made this a statute, an ordinance for Israel from, the, from that day until this. I love that last line. David has not yet been installed as king, but here he is making this first decree and it's all about equality. Everybody will share equally in God's kingdom. No second class citizens in God's kingdom. Everyone receives the same. There were some troublemakers among God's people. They were greedy and self-seeking. They were living by works. They weren't interested in the ways of God and his kingdom. The way of grace and mercy and love. Looking at those who stayed behind exhausted, they said, we've been fighting hard in the battle. They've done nothing. Why should they get the same as us? But the kingdom of God is built on grace. We're saved by grace. None of us deserve anything. And so there's a beautiful equity about God's kingdom. And it even continues in verses 26 to 31, which I'll not read. Paul did a good job of doing that. There's far too many long words for me to try. The point is that everyone in Israel gets a share of the plunder. It's not only safe to be with the Christ, it's good and right and fair and equal. I like to be safe. And if you're like me, 
a bit risk averse and as I'm getting older, becoming more and more so, then reflect deeply on this chapter. If like me, you know the temptation to look to the world for security and to think that following Jesus Christ is unsafe, think again. This is where you'll find safety. With Jesus Christ, not following the world as we'll see even more clearly next week. And see that following Jesus unreservedly and wholeheartedly, while it looks risky, is in fact the way to know ultimate safety and security. Well, let's turn to pray. We'll leave a moment of silence for us to make our own response. And then Ben Cooper will continue to lead us in our prayers.